Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. At Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, our mission is focused on creating high quality habitat for upland game birds. But by now, you undoubtedly understand the connection between upland birds and a diverse mix of grasses, legumes, and flowering plants that's also critical for pollinators. Our honeybees, beetles, monarch butterflies, hummingbirds, and all sorts of um, pollinating species that uh, create quality habitat and and keep us eating fruits and vegetables and all sorts of food. And that is the focus of today's episode, the intersection of our upland habitat mission for game birds as we celebrate the 2022 edition of Pollinator Week, running June 20th through June 26th. And our featured guests, couple of folks back uh, punching their frequent podcaster cards with us today. Uh, Anna Swarzak, Habitat Education Program Manager and our, educa- and our organization's Pollinator Week quarterback. The dynamic duo, uh, brothers Josh and Sam Soholt, co-owners of Public Land Tees and makers of very special component of this year's Pollinator Week promotion, a special Pollinator Week membership t-shirt that we're going to talk about and making his podcasting debut, Jake Swafford, been with the organization for, gosh, it's got to be close to 10 years now. Uh, We'll ask Jake about that. Jake is the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever coordinating wildlife biologist in Missouri. And he's going to fact check us. Well, he's going to fact check me at least along the way as it is the biologist on the episode today. So we'll go around the horn and uh, have everybody introduce themselves. Uh, We'll start with the quarterback of Pollinator Week returning to put the biggest deal that we've ever offered on the plate for people to get engaged with Pollinator Week. But we'll get to that. Um, Anna Swarzak, welcome back. Uh, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to to our audience if they've missed uh, the last couple of Pollinator Week episodes. Yeah, Anna Swarzak, um, like you mentioned, I'm the Habitat Education Program Manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, but I'm with the organization now for about eight years. Um, goes by really quick. Um, and I probably am one of the few where my title actually very accurately describes what I do, which is all thing habitat education, whether it's youth or adults or landowners, um, just general public. Um, so I work with our chapters and staff and help create programs and uh, resources for them to talk about habitat and Coincidentally, my passion is pollinators, which falls right into that. So it's a lot of those programs are very biased towards pollinators and they are inter- interwoven in every single one of those programs as well, too. Well, it, before we hit record, you were telling us about 
your evening job because Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is your day job. But then you're also a farmer. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Live back on be my husband's family farm. Uh, so here in central Nebraska. So as a lot of us out here, it's a mixture between farming and also ranching. So we also have cattle as, as well, too, along with the farm side. So I definitely enjoy the pastures and the farm side and, and those native prairies more than more than probably the farming to get too excited about it. But <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, every time we talk with somebody on staff that also do does a little bit of farming and ranching on the side. I think it's important to bring that up because of the intersection of our mission. And we have so many members that are landowners, farmers, ranchers, and to know that there's an awful lot of our employees who may be biologists or work in different departments like you do, habitat and education, but you also, you know, you make your living partly through your career with the organization, but partly, you know, the way you treat the land as a farmer and, and as a rancher. And it creates some credibility there, I think, for, for listeners to know that you have a pretty broad perspective um, of, of, you know, how we're treating the land as, a, as an organization, but also to make a profit um, and sustain a, a family. Yep, that's for sure. It's a uh, it's a good thing that I think have both sides because it's really easy to have ideas behind the computer on on what works. But actually being out on the landscaping, seeing how how things are operated, that's where you you really realize what can work and what doesn't work. Right. Uh, we'll jump to the dynamic duo, uh, the two brothers, Josh and Sam Soholt, um, who we've done. Uh, podcast exclusively with with you guys um, during the conservation crossroads promotion last summer. Um, we talked about stamp it forward, and here you are again. When we need um, a couple creative guys that have a belief in conservation, the Soho brothers are the first to come to mind. So thank you very much for for jumping on board with Pollinator Week. Uh, we'll get into what you're doing to collaborate, but maybe uh, we'll start with Josh. Uh, just uh, give us an introduction uh, to who you are. If, if folks didn't listen to the in-depth one-on-one um, podcasts focused exclusively on you guys, introduce yourself to the audience so they get to know you a little bit. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Josh Soholt. I uh, am co-owner of Public Land Tees with Sam, and uh, I'm out in living Fort Collins, Colorado, and uh, just a uh, super passionate hunter fisher outdoorsman that decided to kind of go pro as a family in the conservation space i guess you could say and <laughs> uh sort of just enjoying the ride that that direction has taken us and you're in business with your brother sam yep um How's it let, how how is it working with your brother on a daily basis because i can only imagine it, it you know if i was in business with my brother, it'd be the best of times, but then we'd needle each other on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, most of the time, most of the time it runs pretty well with Sam and I, I mean, like any family and business relationship, of course, there's occasional hurdles, Sure. but, uh, you know, um, I think it helps that 
the whole company is is sort of based on something bigger than the both of us mm. and so it it because that uh destination point isn't doesn't really lie with either one of us it makes it easier to coordinate and work together as as business partners and family yeah uh to kind of stay true to that goal and not squabble about the little stuff that swings through from time to time so <laughs> yeah yeah it's clear you guys get along awfully well and yeah. i think about if i were in business with my brother we'd get along well and we'd also like naturally like he loves fishing way more than i do mm -hmm. and i and i love upland hunting and, and hunting yeah. in general and you sort of you're brothers but you you're not identical twins right like right. there are things that you gravitate towards and, and probably Sam gravitates towards it. Oh, most, are different. most definitely. Sam is a uh, fantastic advertiser and connector with people on the digital space and can take a message out like few people, other people can, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the total talent there. I'm, I'm more on the ground uh, operator, you know, mm -hmm. is more my personality. And so we definitely have, really exclusive separation of duties within the company. We are working on different things every day. We, we almost never work on the same thing. Huh. Um, and that's been a really critical aspect to continuing to show up together at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, if, if folks follow you guys on, on Instagram, you're, you're hunting, you know, a lot together and it, yeah. And it appears anyways, like that's not all work related. Like you guys just oh, no. purely yeah. enjoy your company, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's a lot of that aspect is um, I think the trust he and I have for each other, yeah. you know, was forged in adventure situations in which it was he and I out there taking care of each other to make sure the day was both safe and successful, you know, so having your back, you know, in, in that way that sometimes only extreme situations can produce right on yeah well sam welcome welcome back into the conversation it's probably awkward just hearing me and your brother talk about you for the last five minutes <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's all good it's all good it's all good things you know so yeah yeah uh you're calling from uh from fargo north dakota tell us uh tell us what's happening in, in your world right now you know just like most times in fargo it's just flat a little bit windy uh, but the sun is shining today, which is a change uh, from most of the spring. Um, but no, things are good. It's uh, it's finally, you know, the, the seasons have started to change and it's getting me excited for kind of all the prep work that happens in the summer and then going into fall. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a good spot to be right now. And you're also, uh, in addition to co-owning uh, Public Guarantees, you're a professional photographer too, correct? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, dove into kind of the video and photography game back in 2011 and and then um, moved out. I was an intern for Midwest Whitetail and then moved out to Colorado and worked at Josh's backcountry hunting store and, and archery pro shop. And uh, and then from there, uh, ended up moving to Montana and diving right back into the video and photography game and have kind of been a the best term for it is permalance, you know, like I'm a, I'm a freelance, I'm a freelance photographer, but have been permanently doing that since, uh, 2012. So, um, yeah, been doing it for a long time now. Cool. Well, yeah. thank you for, for joining us, not only on the podcast, but, uh, 
with our pollinator week efforts. We'll talk about that in a moment. But rounding out the um, the conversation or the group for today's conversation is, I mentioned he's going to be our fact checker. He's he's our biologist for this episode, Jake Swafford. And I, I said, you've been on the team for about 10 years. How close yeah. am I? Nailed it. Uh, yeah, March okay. made 10 years uh, for me. And so, yeah, it's been uh, kind of a crazy decade. Like Anna said, uh, I don't really know where the time went. Um, started back in 2012 out in New Mexico as a farm bill biologist, uh, originally from Missouri. Uh, and in 2016, I, I got to move back here. Um, but yeah, I still feel like that, uh, you know, young biologist that got stuck on the ground halfway across the country uh, 10 years ago. And when I see the newer folks that we're bringing on, uh, I, I just kind of go, man, where, where has the time gone? Uh, I'm, I'm one of the, one of the seniors now. <laughs> so we're going to come back to you in a moment, Jake, and, and have you tell us a little bit about sort of from a biologist perspective, state of the, um, state of the union for pollinators. So as, as I prep for this podcast, I just, gathered a few statistics that I want to start the conversation with. So over the last 25 years, we've had a huge drop in pollinator populations across the country. Uh, in the U.S., there's 49 different species of bumblebees. And just like I said, in the last 25 years, eight of those species have, have hit the endangered species list. In 2020, the monarch butterfly, a species that we all grew up like raising in that little terrarium, right in first grade, from right from from a pupa to caterpillar to beautiful monarch butterfly. In 2020, the monarch butterfly was declared um, worthy of being an endangered species by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. But it wasn't put on the endangered species list because there are 161 species in this country of higher priority need. That's a mouthful of a massive statement, 161 species that are in that crisis of a situation. And the monarch is one of them. And, you know, I can think about being a kid growing up in the late 80s. And at least my perspective or perception that there were monarchs everywhere. And, you know, whether it's invasive species and diseases on the landscape that weren't there 25 years ago, um, the use of pesticides in a more rampant way, non-targeted way. We've all read about neonicotinoids and what that's done to pollinators. A changing climate that's all had impacts on, on pollinators monarchs, bumblebees, but the intersection for our organization is that loss of habitat, um, particularly the flowering plants that attract insects and are so vital in the circle of life. Um, it, it, the circle of life or the web of life, you pick your analogy and, you know, our, our favorite birds when they're chicks survive, their sustenance comes from insects whether that's beetles or grasshoppers, and it all starts with flowering plants. And um, that's what 
has the the loss of those flowering plants has led to the population crash crash of all sorts of pollinators. So as we sit here today, Jake, as the biologists in the group, and it's really been say 20 in the last 20 years, people have been talking about pollinators, but it's probably hyper focused on it in say the last 10, you know, even seven, right? The people have been hyper focused on the population crashes around bumblebees and monarch butterflies. As we sit here in 2022, how are things sitting? Because certainly it's been a news story that's been covered. There's been a lot of efforts made to create more pollinator habitat. Is the tide turned at all in the last few years? You know, I think um, there's probably been some small victories here and there and definitely, um, you know, reason to to appreciate what's, what's happening. Um, but we've still got a long way to go. Pollinators are definitely still in trouble uh, within the United States and, and worldwide. And you kind of uh, already mentioned it, but, you know, there's just so many species of pollinating insects that are uh, not just in decline, but threatened, uh, endangered. They're on um, their states, you know, species of critical concern uh, kind of list. And yeah, you know, they've we, we've been talking about them for a while uh, now, but really kind of we, we've started to see the the action happen, I think, in the last six or seven years, um, which, you know, I don't really know if that's enough time to, to tell if there's been significant progress made. But we do see um, little victories here and there, um, you know, so monarch populations, while they have declined, uh, we, you know, last year we saw a, a little bit. Uh, of a spike. So they went from uh, 2.1 hectares to 2.8, um, which is uh, sounds like great news. And, and it is. Uh, we're going to take the little victories where we can get them. Um, but the fact of the matter is that we're looking for a 10-year average of six hectares um, to consider that population, you know, recovered. And so um, are we trending in the right direction? I think, yeah, if we can keep some of the same momentum uh, and passion that we have, but uh, by no means is it time to you know let off the gas. We we've got to go uh, full steam ahead and and really check every box that we can to protect these um, these species, uh, be that uh, you know habitat, other conservation measures, uh, and just awareness uh, in general. So the this the hectares. Am I pronouncing that right? Hectares. Hectares. Hector, that you're talking about is their wintering grounds in Mexico, yeah. where they measure when these monarchs fly back to Mexico, they can literally measure the size of the entire population and where they come back to this one, is it, I believe it's pronounced alluvial forests. Did I pronounce that right? I think so. And it's uh, OML fir. I, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, uh, but uh, OML fir trees. And it's all down there in a specific mountain range by um, by Mexico City. And yeah, that's where all the um, eastern population uh, of monarchs uh, go every winter. So they'll fly from anywhere all the way up by the Canadian border, all the way back down about mm-hmm. 3,000 miles in winter there. And that's our best chance um, to, to count them. Uh, and rather than counting individual butterflies, they just kind of fly over and measure the area um, and, and report that back in hectares, which 
uh, is about 2.5 acres per hectare. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting way of surveying. Well, and it speaks to how visual we are as human beings. You know, when you think about lesser prairie chicken and the the, their population plummet, you know, you sort of identify with how many birds you see or don't see on the landscape. Same thing with monarchs. It's the most visual member of pollinators that you think about because it's like bumblebees, like they don't all go to the same place and they're so small, right? right? And insects in general are so small. So they're easy to sort of take for granted that they're disappearing where at Absolutely. least with monarchs, it's like they're visual, so they're be- beautifully identified. And there's a place where the majority of them all go back to so you can see where how they're doing. But when you think about, I had no idea that there are 49 species of bumblebees, right? Like I can identify like, well, there's the black ones and the yellow ones, right? (laughs) But but there's all these species, and if they disappear, you know, visually you don't see it, and you sort of take it for granted. But I think the statistic is like one in three bites of food we eat requires pollination of some sort, whether that's an apple blossom, a blueberry blossom, you know, or your favorite, you know, hot pepper. And hot peppers need pollination, right? So all these bites of food need a honeybee or a hummingbird or a beetle. And when they disappear, you know, you don't see it until the prices start going up on the vegetables because they're not getting pollinated, um, which is why, you know, that it intersects for us with brood habitat. Because that brood habitat that attract the insects is the exact same habitat that pollinators need. The same that little quail chicks and little pheasant chicks, as we're talking about, you know, as pollinator week, the third week of June, when's the peak of the hatch for upland birds, right? It's a little bit variable for quail, but for pheasants, it's like mid-June. That's when yeah. everything, so that intersection of pollinating flowers and insects and, and broods, it's like mother nature had it all figured out and we just got to follow along. So let, let's dive into pollinator weekend. Tell us about um, what we have, maybe do a quick recap of what, what last year brought forward and then what we got coming up uh, for 2022. Yes. Um, So last year, which was awesome, we had 291 of our pollinator habitat kits go out. Um, That also included our Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever membership within those. Um, And so 291, that might not sound like a lot, but it is to me. Um, But within those kits, that was over 2,000 new wildflower plugs on the landscape. Um, And within that, there was milkweed included in every single one of those kits. We'll get into more of that later on um, Jake and I nerding out about how we picked out these species <laughs> and what we all included in there and why. Um, but there's over 700 diff- um, new milkweed plants um, that we were able to put on the landscape too just during that week, which is which is pretty pretty cool to say it in the, 
and how I can, but, and those were planted across 37 different states. So just to look at it visually crossed on where these all went out to, um, it went wide and far. And there, there are um, six of them in my backyard too. Yes. <laughs> uh, and what's, what's on tap for 22? So for 22, we had to uh, increase it up a little bit. Um, so we, um, along with having three different species again in your kit that you'll receive, um, we have some new species that'll be in there as well too. So if you ordered last year, um, this year you'll for sure at least get one or two new species in there. So it won't just be the same kit that you ordered last year. Um, it'll have your same habitat uh, planting sign, another one in there for you. Um, those species will have wildflowers blooming early, mid, and late with the milkweed in there. Um, and then for the cool part that we added on, which is why another reason why we have Sam and Josh on here is we have a pretty awesome, I think I talked about my obsession with stickers on the last podcast on here. <laughs> um, so they designed an amazing sticker for us and pollinator t-shirt as well too. That'll be included into that kit. So it's it's a, uh, there's really no reason not to get one. I mean, I'll probably be going on there and buying a couple myself as well, too. It, it really is a compelling offer like for folks that see Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever put membership offers online or through direct mail. Um, you know, generally speaking, we're spending 8 to $10 of hard costs to provide a gift, to pull people into our conservation mission. It's a reality of the way, of the, way the world works. So people are looking for some free gift to get them engaged in the organization so we can supply the, the Pheasants Forever Journal or the Quail Forever Journal. And we hope that they get more invested in the organization and our conservation mission. And they love getting the journal and they love seeing that for 40 years, four decades, 90 cents on the dollar that we raise, no matter how it's raised, whether it's grants, whether it's membership dues, whether it's a sponsorship from federal ammunition or skag lawnmowers, 90 cents on the dollar for four decades has hit the ground for upland habitat conservations, getting right into the ground. And we hope that, that whatever it is, a, a browning knife or a hat, or a public lands t-shirt gets them hooked into our organization and they stay committed to upland and in our upland habitat conservation mission and kudos and thank you to the Soho brothers for, for stepping forward and saying, yes, public lands t-shirts does, we're going to donate the t-shirts to you guys because we, we not only believe in your organization, we believe in pollinator week. So I, that's where I want to start with Sam, like public lands teas. You guys have really been, you know, very frontal about your commitment to public lands, to the duck stamp, to, you know, conservation crossing last year with getting a whole bunch of um, organizations involved in, in trying to rally the general public to get committed to Mule Deer Foundation and Delta Waterfall. And, and here you take another step forward and say, yeah, we care about pollinators too. Uh, Sam, you're donating, you guys are independent 
business owners, why is this important enough for you to give the t-shirts to this cause? So when Josh and I started Public Land Tees, we did so on the basis of protecting public lands. And on top of that, we also know that we're not making any more land. So the land that we have to use, the land that is available out there, we know that the habitat needs to be preserved, improved, maintained uh, for future generations going forward. And when you, you know you look at some of the projects we've done in the past, whether it be an access project or something like Stamp It Forward, which puts money on the ground for wetland habitat, Pollinator Week falls right in there because not only does it help upland bird species, we look at the much larger picture of it helping every species that lives on the landscape. So it was a no brainer for us to be part of this. And last year I was actually talking to uh, Matt Morlock and he's like, hey, we've got Pollinator Week coming up. Um, and we had just talked a little bit about it and thought it was a very cool concept that you guys were rolling out with planting more wildflowers and, and both of us growing up, you know, in South Dakota, like on mm. the Great Plains, it kind of like pheasant country, you know, kind of like all fit in together, kind of like right in our wheelhouse. And, uh, I think, I mean, right then I was like, we should do a, you know, birds and the bees tea or something mm-hmm. for you guys next, next year when pollinator week rolls around. So, uh, this whole, like collaboration has really been marinating since last June um, and kind of finally came to fruition um, for lack of a better term, you know? Um, But yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're very proud to be part of it and happy to be part of it because it helps further your guys' mission as well as our mission for what, for the whole reason that we started public land tees. Cool. Cool. It's it's so awesome when people see kind of the, the overarching, like it, if we're not successful creating more habitat and better habitat, like the, your base, right? Your audience starts to dwindle. So you, you sort of see the entirety of the, the process, which is goes back to why we see the connection with pollinators, right? It's like, if we can't create great habitat for pollinators. We're not going to create great habitat for upland birds. So it's all wrapped together. Uh, Josh, you you came up with the concept for this T-shirt. Uh, tell us uh, your, your thought process here. Sure. <clears throat> um, you know, on this one, I think that, you know, an awful lot of our T-shirts, they're kind of there to sort of start a conversation. Hmm. And I felt like with Pollinator Week, like how do we convey a super clear message on what we're trying to accomplish here? Uh so that it it both is a little bit self-explanatory and it kind of makes you go what is the is it okay if i spill kind of what it is at this point absolutely okay so it's like a math equation essentially on a shirt so you have your pollinators plus wildflowers uh equals upland game species you know in sort of a three circle uh, uh design that sam drew up uh from the concept but uh i think it really clearly states what we're after here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so cool to be a part of a, just a super on the ground, making an actual concrete difference effort mm-hmm. with it. And I think that uh, maybe that design sort of speaks to that just concrete nature, basically X plus Y equals Z. And we all have to get on board. You know, it's, it's not one group of people or another, everybody that has a postage stamp of their own to, to plant a few seeds on, like we all kind of need to get in on this. I mean, it's a big deal 
whether you're a sports person or not, whether you're an agricultural or not. I mean, if you're a human and you eat, you know, we all need to uh, get get to be a part of this math equation. Right so, on. Yeah, because yeah. you, you mentioned like whether you're a postage stamp, you have a backyard. Yeah, exactly. That you can yeah. plant, uh, plant these plugs, these prairie flowers, yeah. and it's going to benefit bees, yeah. right? Yeah. And Or if you have... If you're one of those people that have 800 acres of CRP, man, and you can plant some pollinator habitat, not only are you doing great things for pollinators, for honeybees, for monarchs, but if you bought you know, if you bought that land and you planted it CRP and you're optimistic, like, ah, I want to create a pheasant Valhalla or a, a Bob White heaven, man, Put some pollinator habitat on there and you're going to get your dream come true because you're going to get more broods. You're going to have more birds and you're going to have more fun with your bird dog come come hunting season. And again, that's kind of the equation that you laid out on the T-shirt, right? Because at the end, the end of the equation, you know, I'm not an E equals MC squared sort of um, Einstein level thinker. But at the end of the the t-shirt, there's more sage grouse, bobwhite quail, and pheasants. Like I can get that. <laughs> right? yeah. It's it's yeah. a very two plus two equals four equation that all of us um, really can wrap our heads around. So it's a really cool, fun design. Um, and if folks are listening um, to the podcast through SoundCloud or Spotify. I got to do is go on our website, pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. You'll see an image of the shirt. Um, and again, as Anna mentioned, you get the shirt, you get the sticker, you get um, the, the habitat side, you get a membership to Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever, or you can buy them both and you'll get also get the plugs, the plants. Um, if you buy them both, you can double down on everything. Um, and again, it's all been donated to us. The, so there's a, with the statistic I mentioned before, 90 cents on the dollar with this particular promotion, this membership promotion, it's actually going to be higher than that because of folks like Sam and Josh Showholt who have donated the t-shirt. So more money is going to hit the ground. And I think Josh, you spoke to this specifically. It's like, it connects very tangibly to on the ground because you're going to get plants to plant, exactly. right? <laughs> yep. It's a, it's not just an awareness thing. It's a, an actual action you can take, which I, we think is incredibly cool. So props to Anna and, and all that with that. Yeah. Right. I, and Anna, why, why don't you think, um, where, where are the, the plugs coming from? Yep. Um, so we're able to get that funding to help support them, all of the wildflower plugs through um, our partners that help support all of our habitat education programs. So all of these partners that not just Pollinator Week, they're also helping us support our habitat education programs that we run year round with our staff and chapters as well, too. Um, and they've been with us for years. So Bayer, Corteva, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Monarch Joint Venture and Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's Outdoor Fund. So there's a lot of people um, also passionate about pollinators that are that are stepping up to the plate and and helping us make a difference in the landscape. Cool. All right, let's let's talk about 
we've got this year a little bit different mix based on where the buyer lives. Um, so where you purchase your membership, if you live in eastern states, you're going to get three different plants versus central states versus um, western states. And we're going to go back and, and, and fact check or get some info from our biologist, uh, Jake. So our eastern buyers um, are going to get three flowers and they're broke out by early, mid and late. The early, so the the three bloom periods is where they're, they're broke out. So um, explain why that's important for folks, Jake, the, the three different bloom periods. Yeah, yeah. I was really hoping we'd get to talk about that because I do think that it's, uh, it's really neat and really important that uh, these kits have been built this way. And so uh, kudos to Anna and the team that have put those together. Uh, anytime I'm talking habitat, uh, pollinator habitat with folks, the key is diversity. And part of that uh, is because we want those different wildflowers out there for all the different species of the pollinating insects. You bring in, you know, they're tied individually to, to certain species. So if you've got the plant there, you're going to have that insect. Um, the other part of that is providing nectaring sources for those pollinators um, and attracting them for those broods throughout the entire, uh, you know, summer. Uh, and so we want, you know, from early spring through late fall, we want something blooming uh, the whole time. Um, so even when we have more diverse mixes that we're putting on the ground, large landscapes, you know, we're shooting for 30, 40, 50 species of wildflowers out there. Um, there's only so much we can do with uh, plugs and free kits, um, but definitely, uh, you know, tailoring this to where you're going to get a couple species uh, in each one of those bloom periods is critical. So, um, you know, you're going to have uh, something blooming, uh, aesthetically pleasing out there in your garden, uh, drawing your eye uh, and looking really nice. Uh, also doing good things for pollinators, both in the spring, middle of the summer, into the fall. Uh, and that's critical, yeah. uh, whether you're talking about monarchs migrating through or just providing those nectaring sources for an insect that, you know, life cycle is uh, at a certain time in the year. So um, great job there. Uh, the New Jersey tea is the early species for the Eastern kit. And that's kind of a low growing uh, shrubby native, uh, typically doesn't get more than three foot tall. And it's got these small clusters of uh, white flowers that bloom kind of March through May. Um, and, and it's just a really cool uh, looking little plant. Of course, I believe uh, in a, every kit has a milkweed in it. And I think that makes up the, the mid-season uh, blooming species uh, in, in all the kits. And so uh, if you're in uh, the eastern U.S., you're going to get butterfly milkweed, um, which just has those bright orange you know, blooms uh, right there in the middle of the summer. Uh, and is a critical component for monarch reproduction. That's milkweeds are the only plants that monarchs will reproduce on. And so um, it's just really, really cool that we were able to get those uh, for all three regions uh, and uh, include those in these kits. Uh, the late blooming species uh, for the eastern kits is the uh, calico aster. And so that's going to bloom uh, from around October or August through October. Uh, it's got several white flowers, not as many as the uh, New Jersey tea, um, but it has a really bright yellow center that slowly turns purple, which is a really neat kind of thing. 
Um, and, and that's how it got its name is because it changes that color. Um, they're just a, a really cool plant um, and round out the kit really nicely. Yeah. <clears throat> they're all beautiful, but hands down that butterfly milkweed, right? That with the orange pop, if you have that in your backyard, oh, yeah. that's, that's like a top fiver for me. Uh, it's yeah. so gorgeous and so showy. The other thing is I think about like, and Jake, I'm, I'm curious, like, do the majority of the plants bloom in the summer? Like, like it's harder to find the early and the late, but the early and the late are probably the more important because it's like when, when the pollinators, uh, well, particularly monarchs just get back from a long trip or they need to fuel up before they go on a long trip and there just seems like like 80 percent of the flowers happen like june july and trying to find some a mix in your garden or your habitat like for whatever your recipe is like trying to find early and late are a little bit more of a challenge but probably more critical in your plan is that accurate yeah, I think I think it definitely can be. And that's, uh, you know, it's kind of it depends on what region you're in uh, and where you're at. But definitely uh, the early and late seasons uh, tend to be a little bit harder to find. And you nailed it like with the monarchs, Bob, you know, uh, you know if you're down in the Texas uh, area, um, you're going to want something early uh, blooming for the monarchs as they're coming up from Mexico. That's going to be critical. They've overwintered. They're the only generation that lives nine months. They show up you know, faded and, and wings with holes in them. Hmm. And if there's nothing blooming yet, um, they're going to have a really hard time continuing that migration or, or getting to a point where they can go ahead and reproduce. Um, in the fall, you know, as those monarchs start to migrate back down to Mexico, uh, if you're in that kind of southern summer range, uh, you need sources there so that they can fuel up and, and head back down. And so um, definitely critical to have all of those and, um, and really important to, to make sure that when you're building your habitat or your gardens that, that you take that into consideration. Yeah, right on. All right, so you talked about um, it, the east. Let's move to the central. Um, we got mid, the mid-bloom period. We're back with our, our butterfly milkweed. Um, what's, our, what's our early and our late for the central? Yeah, so um, early on, we've got cream wild indigo which is a really cool plant. Um, it's got uh, a lot of pea-like flowers. It's a, it's a legume. Uh, and so, um, and it's, they're, they're cream, kind of white to yellowish um, blooms. And that's going to happen uh, kind of April, May uh, on into June. Uh, and those are, you know, we talked about er the importance of early for, for certain species. Um, those are a really important early nectar source for bumblebee queens mm. as they emerge in the spring. So they they emerge first and they're looking for those early nectar sources. And if they're not there, they're not going to be successful in, you know, establishing a uh, brood and that kind of stuff. So uh, really cool plant. Um, and then, yeah, butterfly milkweed for the mid. I think Anna did mention that we've got some other milkweeds on standby uh, because sometimes there's some availability issues. And so we've got a whole lineup of other awesome milkweed plants out there. Um, potentially some showy milkweed, which is a really bright purple world milkweed, which is one of my favorite. Uh, I see it out uh, in some of the uh, grasslands that I work in. And when I stumble upon it and it hasn't been planted and just kind of popped up from that mm -hmm. native seed bed, I, 
I really like seeing that. Uh, and it's got a greenish white uh, with kind of long, narrow leaves. It doesn't look anything like the, the common milkweed that most folks are familiar with. Very fast. So yeah, I'm I'm seeing uh, Anna's note. There are some states that are going to get uh, a little bit different variety of milkweed. milkweed. Based on what state you're ordering from, we're going to get you the right variety. Um, in the central region, tell us about purple prairie clover, our, our late bloomer. Yeah, so this is really cool. Um, it blooms uh, June through September. Uh, and it has, uh, I guess, the best way I could, uh, the word I found to describe it was a thimble shaped, but it's got that uh, that kind of matchbox looking tip that uh, blooms from the top up to the uh, end, and it's just uh, bright purple, as the name would uh, uh, indicate. And so it gets about two foot tall and has really kind of long, narrow stems. It's really cool for pollinator gardens. I think it just adds a, a whole different kind of texture uh, to the look. Um, than you get from a lot of the other plants. Uh, and it, uh, it's a legume, and so it'll fix nitrogen into the soil and, and supply that to the other plants around it. So it's really great to have in there if you've got um, kind of a, a prairie patch or pollinator plot that you're um, trying to help boost some other plant species around too. And it's critical for the rusty patched uh, bumblebee. It's Ooh. a good nectar source there. And that's one of those threatened bumblebee species you mentioned earlier. Right on. And I think another thing that you've done here, Anna, and we, we talked about it in last year's podcast, is you have different heights to go with the different bloom periods, too. And that's an important component um, for pollinators and for broods. So you have those pollinating plants that are a little taller to provide cover, that leafy cover from avian birds for the broods, too. Right, Jake? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, one of the biggest selling points I use when I'm uh, talking pollinator habitat with uh, folks who maybe didn't walk through the door uh, thinking they wanted to attract insects and butterflies is uh, it's terrific brooding habitat, not just because of the insects, but because of that structure. So you end up um, not with a really dense mat um, like some of the grasses uh, that can actually obstruct brood movement uh, when they're little. Um, you end up with those broadleaf plants that create, you know, a canopy that hides them from from aerial predators while allowing them to run around on the ground underneath and actually do that foraging um, that they need uh, for that first six weeks when they're just eating insects. All comes for full circle. So um, then we have the, the, the final grouping of pollinator plants are folks that are buying from the West. So walk us through what uh, what comes with the, the plant kit for our new members that order the pollinator package out west. Yeah, and I know uh, out west was a little trickier to do last year just because of the availability uh, and species. Uh, but you know, we're committed to making sure that these are all native plants that are going to perform well in your region. Um, uh, you know, not going to get out of hand and are going to provide that that resource to those uh, pollinator species. And so, uh, I think we've already. Um, talked about the purple prairie clover, which is the late bloomer. Yep. Um, the mid uh, season is the showy milkweed, uh, which pink to purple flowers, really cool, just kind of defined star shape. It, it's definitely an eye catcher. Uh, and, uh, you know, it doesn't form colonies like uh, the common milkweed that you see in the road ditches and stuff like that. And so it's a really nice kind of plant to put 
in a garden for landscaping uh, or in a plot if you just want that pop of color uh, you know it's not going to take over or anything like that um, and of course just like all the other milkweeds it's it's an important um, nectar source for all sorts of pollinator species and critical for reproduction of monarchs um, i kind of went backwards there but uh, the early uh, species is yarrow and that's just a cool one i think it was in a lot of the kits last year so um, that might be a duplicate if you're getting this uh, for the second year but i don't think you can have too much of this uh, it's a it's a really cool plant it's got soft kind of fern like leaves uh, and you know gets to be oh two three foot tall um, and that'll bloom uh, may through uh, kind of midsummer uh, with a big flat topped white flower uh, and it's just it's a really cool one. So I wouldn't be upset about getting another one no, uh, a lot like this year. Especially like the one, the yarrow that's in my backyard are the ones that are like not only greening up quickest, but you can tell that they're going to expand the fastest too. Like it's really, really healthy couple of plants that I have for the yarrow that are out there. Um, Absolutely. From last Mine from last year is going, going nuts. Yeah. Yeah, really, really beautiful assortment. Um, Anna, like, I feel like I'm on QVC or something trying to pump up a, um, a made-for-television offer. If you'd like to buy the Rompopio Pocket Fisherman, I have three of them for sale on my Instagram account. Uh, but it, it really is a pretty awesome package. Um, we, we've got the three plugs based upon your geography. We got the Public Lands Pollinator Week T-shirt. We got the stickers. We got the sign, the the Pollinator Habitat sign. We got your choice, depending on what you pick: pheasants forever, quail forever, membership, which is going to get you the journal for either brand. You're going to get another sticker, the vehicle decal QF or PF for your for your truck. You get the most important thing: like your dollars are going to go to something you care about. There is a catch, and the catch is there's only 300 of these, right? Yep. 300, and it's sold out. So don't delay. Um, if you're listening to the podcast, um, Pollinator Week's been going a couple days now because this we recorded this in advance, and uh, – if you're hearing this, do not delay because we anticipate this is going to sell. We sold 291 membership packages last year, and it didn't include the Public Lands t-shirt, so do not delay. Uh, we anticipate this being sold out really quickly. So go to pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org, um, and look for it. will be right front and center on our banners um, and sign up to join the organization. Um I'm going to go around the horn and ask for everybody's closing thoughts. With that, I want to know what your favorite pollinator plant is um, around the horn. But I, I want to give the Soho Brothers one other opportunity here to, to um, plug one other thing you guys got coming up. You had some really cool pheasant and uh, upland-oriented designed T-shirts at Pheasant Fest. And uh, you told us before we hit record that you're, you're getting ready to roll those out. Um, uh, tell us about some of the designs and where they can find, where our audience can find those shirts. 
yeah, we came out with three brand new designs at Pheasant Fest this year, and we had originally planned on launching those right after Pheasant Fest, uh, but decided maybe we should wait until pheasants closer to pheasant season. And Josh was saying this earlier, but <clears throat> we kind of both got antsy, and uh, we're going to start releasing those um, after this podcast launches. So we've got three new ones. We've got, I guess, how much do we want to spill about the designs? Whatever, uh, you know. Anyway, we got three it's new all, designs. It's all good. They're going to be upland-oriented. <laughs> upland-oriented T-shirt yes. designs. You can find them over at publiclandtees.com. And, uh, yeah, as always, $5 from every item we have ever sold is donated back to different conservation efforts. Cool. Thank you very much for what you guys do for the organization year in and year out, you know, whether it's being at Pheasant Fest, making a donation to, to our efforts through Game Fair. Um, and you guys always do it with a smile on your face and a real genuine commitment to um, organizations like ours, you know, and, and beyond ours. And you, you really become a part of the Upland, uh, well, conservation community broadly. So thank you for what you guys do. I'll put you guys on the spot first. We'll start with Sam. Your favorite prairie flower uh and then maybe a closing thought so i'll be totally honest i don't know my flower species very well so i've actually learned a lot just on this this podcast and i've been looking up images as we've gone through the different flowers for the pollinator kits and uh i didn't know it but i'm a big fan of that purple prairie prairie clover mm. i like that one yeah that one's pretty cool yeah it's it's yeah. cool how the stem like uh, how it blooms as it climbs the stem that's a yeah, really really cool. beautiful one I'm always yeah. a sucker for purple, too. Um, Josh, what's your uh, yeah. favorite prairie flower? Uh, so yeah, I, I'm a coneflower guy. Right on. Uh, I like I like prairie coneflower. Actually, I have ten of them uh, in my front yard in a perennial uh, flower bed that I have up there. I I got into gardening about five years ago uh, as an effort to. Um, sort of complete the meal of food because I'm always getting all the meat and that side. Mm. But I was like, well, I'm, I'm going out and getting all this perfectly wild organic meat and then pairing it with what I'm buying at the store. Uh, and so I've really made an attempt to try to complete the plate. And uh, with that comes pollination. And uh, I've started by um, planting flowers in each corner of my garden to uh, stimulate pollination within the garden and then kind of liked it. So I took it out front and, uh, I'm trying to make, I have one big oval bar and one big bar that goes all the way down the front of my house with flowers. And, um, it's fun to see the bees and the butterflies and everything getting after it. So yeah, it was, it was exciting on a lot of fronts to be a part of this program, but yep. Coneflower. I like the ones that are yellow and red and kind of the fire colors mm. are my, uh, my favorite and they could just go like gangbusters out where I'm at. So um it works pretty good yeah right i'm i'm right there with you i, I love gardening have a big vegetable garden and then yeah. that led to what we call meredith's meadow right next to it my wife has the kind of a right prairie um, um just a flowering um garden and right next to the vegetable garden and it's just super cool for you see the full circle and i like how you say uh complete the plate right like you have yeah yeah the venison and and now you can or the, the pheasant or the quail or the wild turkey and then the brussels sprouts you grew or the sweet corn yeah. or whatever it is that's right next to it 
Yeah, to have the connection with the food. I'm sure you can all relate on the podcast here, but there's something special about that when your hands are the only ones that put together an entire meal of food for you and your family. It's uh, it's a feeling that you don't get eating other food. It's pretty cool. Yeah, right on. So, yeah. Uh, Jake, what's your favorite? We're, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let Anna have the last word. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, well, mine's uh, actually wild bergamot. So I guess I'm, I'm on your page, Bob, with the purples. Um, uh, and even though I love how bright uh, and the purple is, uh, what I really like is the shape of those flowers. So there's mm. just these big purple kind of pom-poms um, with all these little spikes coming off. And the plants can get uh, pretty big, so they're easy to see while you're driving down the road or first thing when I roll up to a landowner's property. Um, they're part of the mint family, so you, you walk past them and brush up against them or tear them up, and uh, you know they just smell terrific. Uh, I know I can tell when my uh, bird dog's been in the pollinator plot I've got in the backyard because I walk over there and I can just smell the mint in the air. Um, and so that's a that's my favorite one. I also I got a, a plug a few years ago when I was working on getting a bunch of uh, pollinator plants in my backyard and uh, just didn't get around to planting it because I had so many other ones. And so I just kind of absentmindedly set it on top of a, a pot I had with a little bit of potting soil. And I'm not sure how the thing survived, but it turned into this giant plant. I ended up moving it to like a half, uh, you know, half barrel planter and then just moved it right into my pollinator plot. And it's probably, you know, four foot tall right now and just going going nuts and so uh, i'm in the process of, i'm gonna be moving soon and so i'm gonna dig about half that plant up <laughs> and bring it with me and just let it recolonize a new yard and start my pollinator plot there it, it's nice. it's funny but you know with the way you talk about having that connection to that plant like you see that with hardcore bird hunters that own their own property and plant pollinator plots within their crp planting or whatever they're trying to grow for the birds they become like they see the wave of blooms from the early to the mid to the you know oh yeah the compass plants are in bloom now and they're following the sun with the big yellow heads like a sunflower and they become personally connected to the plants and and i feel that like we walk every night like if i'm grilling a pork chop on the grill like i walk around meredith's meadow and see how the plants are doing and what's blooming now and what insects are on there and you know we one of the high points last last summer was um a hummingbird moth have you mm -hmm. that was on yeah. one of the the um the cup plants which is like a sunflower thing that big yellow head and here's this moth that looks like a hummingbird. It's like, holy cow, this, I, I never would have saw this had not been planted in their backyard. And you, you start to connect emotionally with that plant. And then you start understanding sort of how our entire natural world is really like, again, we all learn this in third grade, but it comes to real visual certainty when you see it blooming literally in your backyard um anna final words put a bow on this episode for us <laughs> that sounds good um i'll start off with my favorite which i thought about this you asked us this on the last one and i didn't go back and listen i 
pretty sure this will change depending on the season on what my favorite favorite wildflower is. Um, and I definitely lean towards the purples as well, too. And so Ohio spiderwort, I believe, is what I said last year. So somebody can fact check me on, on that one. Um, <laughs> but it's definitely just a different looking um, flower. It, has, it blooms for a really long time, too, on the early season. Um, then I was going to pick out my favorite from this kit, which is definitely the purple prairie clover. Mm. And it may have gotten into these kits because I <laughs> biasly wanted one for my own backyard <laughs> because I did not have um, any of that right now in my pollinator plot going. Um, so that may have snuck its way in there a little bit more intentionally than, than some of the others, but just to kind of wrap a bow on it, um, as we're talking, going over everything that's in this kit, I mean, if you're passionate about pollinators, like we all are on here, um, there's there's really no better way to help help support pollinators. You get a Pheasants Forever Curl Forever membership that's helping put habitat on the ground where maybe you do live in the city. Um, so having that membership is a way that you can help support these programs on the ground that where you don't live um, you're able to plant your own habitat in your own backyard, right? So you get to do something yourself and, and watch it all throughout the year. Um, and then thanks to Public Land Tees, you guys get to go and sport this awesome t-shirt, which, I mean, Jake and I can attest, I don't know how many times we, we talk about pollinator habitat and how that's connected to upland habitat. And we'll go through these talks, whether it's with kids or adults, and this t-shirt, I mean, just lays it out perfectly. To make it to where anybody wearing this, you can sport it and, you know, make that connection to anybody and help help share with others on how important this habitat is. Right. Right. And if you're not compelled by any other factoid, then one in three bites of every piece of food we eat needs pollination. So join us for a good cause. There's only 300 opportunities, so don't delay. Um, for Sam Soul, Josh Soul, thank you very much for joining the conversation. Jake Swafford, thanks for bringing the the biology to the conversation. Anna, terrific leadership in putting together just an unbelievable, uh, compelling offer for 300 new people to get involved with our habitat mission. Thank you so much. All right, folks, I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog, especially if the dog's running into a pollinator patch, because something good is going to rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>